It's a scene that's played out very, very regularly in the life of our congregation here in Kirkpatrick Memorial, a baptism. Only it wasn't a baptism, it was a circumcision, because that's what you did in those days with your wee boys when they were born on the eighth day, you took them to be circumcised. Nowadays, whenever a family has a baptism, um, they'll often have a baptism do. So I talk to the family before or after, and it'll become clear that they're gathering the family and maybe some friends after they've been here with us in church. And it was no different in those days. It seems like having a circumcision do was all the thing too. So that's really what our uh, first part of our reading this morning was about, a circumcision and a circumcision do. Let me introduce or reintroduce the proud parents. So it's Zach and Liz. What do we need to know about them? Well, he, he's a priest, and she's way older than you would expect a woman to be having a baby. Whenever we heard the news, we, we just couldn't believe it. For years, we'd wondered whether Liz would have a baby, and then we'd, we'd given up the wondering. We were pretty sure that that boat had sailed. Whenever the wee lad was born, it it touched the whole street. We were all so excited for them and with them. Couldn't help but want to celebrate. But but I won't forget that baptism do in a hurry. It was the eighth day, um, just as the law said it should be. And and we were there to circumcise the wee one. Nothing out of the ordinary with the, the circumcision. Snip. Ball and his mother comforted them. I've seen it hundreds of times before. But it was after it that the crack really started because the elders wanted to give the wee lad a name. Zechariah, they said to his mum, Liz, by the way, they spoke to his mum because they knew they wouldn't get a word out of his dad. Nobody's had a word out of him for nine months now. So they turned to, to Liz and they said, Zechariah? We'll, we'll call him Zachariah after his dad. And she was like, no, we're not calling him Zachariah. Let's call him John. But Liz, you can't call him John. Nobody in your family is called John. Let's call him Zachariah. And she's, no, we're calling him John. So the elder said, well, we've got to... Gotta, Talk to the kid's dad about this. Talk to Zach. So they did. They went and they made signs to him. They asked him what his wee son should be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. He'd been using this tablet for, for years or for, for months. And I was stretching to see what he was writing on it. But it wasn't until he held it up that I could see it. His name is John. There it was, clear as day. So his mom had said, we're calling him John. His dad said, we're calling him John. We called him John. We still do. The name means God is grace. We couldn't help but wonder back then what kind of a kid this is going to be. His miraculous birth, those strange beginnings... We couldn't help but wonder that God was maybe with him in some special way and that God was going to use him in some very powerful way. As we're watching him, we still think that. We're watching. We couldn't believe what had happened there that day. As soon as he had written on his 
slate, Zechariah got his speech back. It was as if somebody had unzipped his lips, as if somebody had unplugged his ears. He was suddenly able to to speak to us and to, to hear us again. He ended up singing a song. We'll maybe think about that a little bit later. He told us how great God is. As I say, the, we just couldn't believe everything that had happened to that day. Uh, the word of it spread through the village. It spread through the countryside. This kid, what's God going to do through this kid? Folks, it was, uh, sometimes we don't see this when we, we read the narratives. We've heard them before or we, don't, we, we miss the impact. It was quite a day there in that community when John was circumcised. This, and right at the heart of the biblical account of this circumcision do, there's this debate, isn't there? That, that whole episode really hangs on this debate about what this kid's going to be called. More so than nowadays when you might name a kid after a, a famous footballer or a pop star or whatever else is fashionable at the time, names were really important. You named somebody after somebody you admired or you named them after an aspiration that you held for the child. In this story, everybody thought it was going to be enough for this kid to be named after his dad. To be named in the way that convention would have it. To do the dumb thing. But it turned out that God had other plans way beyond what the family expected, way beyond what the culture uh, might have been asking for. God wanted this kid to get the world ready for Jesus coming. I want to pause there for a second and think about that. Um, Although I didn't at first see it, I've come to understand this is a, a pretty significant little debate about the naming of this kid. For me, it speaks powerfully to anybody who's ever had, who's ever been a parent and who's ever had a child to name. I think we're all cast here for a moment in the role of Elizabeth and of Zechariah, and we're confronted with the same question. What name will I give my kid? Is it the one that the culture has given us? You know, the one. The one we're all expected to give our kids in a place like this. The one where they're little more than an exam result or a degree classification. Where you're only ever your salary band or your postcode. Will I give my kid that name? Or will I be more courageous and give them another name? The one that gives them their identity only and fundamentally in God. God is grace. That's what we John's name meant. This name came from outside. It broke in way beyond our family's expectation, the culture's norms. And God offers each one of us and our kids a name way beyond what the norms of our society can ever offer. We get to be defined in relation to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. 
Will we take that name for ourselves and for our kids? Or will we continue to allow others to tell us what our kids are to be called? By extension, I think this passage and the whole of the Bible speaks very powerfully to anybody who's ever been given a name. And that's, that's all of us. We go through our lives wondering, what is my name? I don't mean by that that we're trying to work out, you know, am I Christoph, am I Claire? I don't mean that. I mean, what, what's been given to me? What are the aspirations, the expectations of my family, of, of the, the culture around me, the people who raised me and influenced me? We spend our lives trying to understand that and to live in something of a relationship with those expectations. Whoever we are, and whatever our given name is, I think this story gives us great hope that God can break in and can give us a different name. The Bible's full of stories of people whom God encounters, he meets them and he changes them. And he gives them a new name. There's nobody here who cannot have a new name given by the living God. Let's allow God to do that for us this Advent season. Let's allow him to call us out of the place where we are to a new place. Let's leave behind the small and the shrunken expectations of our culture and live in the wide and beautiful spaces he invites us into in Jesus Christ. I'm going to pause there for a second and we'll sing before we come to the second part of our passage. It breaks up quite naturally just there. We're going to sing a song that talks almost as simply as it could about this thing of of defining ourselves in relationship with Jesus making him the, the all. So it's Jesus, all for Jesus. Let's stand as we sing.
It'd be great if you had that passage open before you. Um, in fact, Luke chapter 1, what I'm going to try and do for a few minutes is to put these closing verses, this closing episode, into the context of the whole of the chapter that we've looked at so far. In a sense, we'll have done as much as we can in Luke's gospel to, to get with the story and to prepare ourselves for what we'll be told about next, the the birth of Jesus. Luke tells us about four different incidents. Gabriel appears uh, to Zechariah in the temple. Gabriel appears to Mary in Nazareth. Mary visits Elizabeth in an unnamed village in Judea. And today, this fourth episode, the, the birth and circumcision of John the Baptist. I want to spend a few moments just noticing a couple of themes that run through and unify those four incidents. First one, first incident, or sorry, the first theme, the Holy Spirit. Nothing has happened in this chapter that the Spirit hasn't done. It's incredible. We're all, we're all about the birth of Jesus. We're all... But we need to notice this in the story. Look quickly with me. These four incidents. The spirits first mentioned verse 15. Gabriel tells Zechariah about this new son. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Skip down to verse 35. In the second incident, Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to have a baby. She puts him a wee bit. She puts him over some uh, basic level biology and says, not likely. And he says, no, you will but it's going to happen in this way. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Mary, this baby you've conceived hasn't been conceived in the normal way. I get that. I know that. But it's been conceived in this different way by the Spirit of God. Third incident, when the pregnant Mary goes to visit Her cousin, Elizabeth, in the Judean hills, verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And now today's passage. Just If you look at the start of the second part of our passage, verse 67, we're told there, at this circumcision do, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. John, Mary, Elizabeth, Zechariah, every significant human player, and they're filled with the Spirit. 
Claire helped us think about this at the start. There's a lot of chat at this time of the year about the true meaning of Christmas. And this year, more than ever, I think the reason Claire and I both have this in our mind is because of a conversation we had earlier this week. We noticed the length that people are going to to create, listen to the language, to create the perfect Christmas. That's something we do now. We create Christmas. We make it be what we want it to be or need it to be for our families. Uh, whether it's the, the beautiful decorations, the lavish gifts, the, the sumptuous feasts, we work hard at it. I'm looking around this room and I know there are a lot of people who are working very hard to create the perfect Christmas. Reading Luke's gospel has been very interesting for me in that season and in this context. I think it speaks to me about the true meaning of Christmas, to use the most rubbish cliche of of this season. True meaning of Christmas, right here, Luke chapter 1. Christmas isn't, it turns out, something that I can create, whether it's in the decorations the gifts, the feasting, or even in my spiritual efforts to have the perfect advent and to get closer to God. No. It's not something I create at all. It's something that comes to me. Because Christmas is all about the God who comes to us, not the God we climb up to, but the God who comes to us By his spirit, he comes among his people. I've started to see this, and do you know what do you know what it's doing for me? It's making me feel this incredible freedom. I don't think I've got it yet because I'm still burdened. But I'm seeing glimpses. Imagine if it didn't all depend on me or on us. What if the thing that God gives us, he gives? What if he's already given his son and he's just going to keep giving his spirit? I don't have to create anything. Just have to slow down enough to, to receive. Very quickly to finish, there's a second theme running through Luke chapter 1. Uh, which I don't want us to miss. It, it, Luke really sets the scene in his first chapter, but it's the, the theme that will run right through his gospel. And we talked about this three weeks ago when we first introduced this series. The second theme is God's salvation. Very quickly, let me trace the thread right through the chapter. We'll just fly through it, uh, and I'll show you. First incident, whenever Gabriel appears to Zechariah, we'll get a hint that something great is going to happen. Look at what he says in verse 19. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to you to tell you this good news. I think it's an amazing picture the way he says it. I stand in the presence of God. You know know that thing we do in church this time tomorrow? What do you normally do when you're not here in church? It's like Gabriel says this time tomorrow, I'm standing in the presence of God. That's where I spend my time. That's where I hang out. But not today. 
I've come today with a message for you. And it's good news. That, that phrase translated there, good news, that's the first time in Luke's gospel that he's used the Greek word euangelion. Gospel. Here's some gospel for you. Some good news. And he then goes on, and the chapter goes on, Luke goes on to tell us a little bit about this good news, this, this gospel that's breaking in. We'll be pretty quick as we fly through these second and third incidents because Richie helped us see those last week. What do we learn about the gospel, this good news of salvation? Well, in the second incident, whenever Gabriel visits Mary, a simple question is answered. Who? The who question. Who's going to bring this message of salvation? Look at verse 30. Gabriel tells Mary about the child she's going to have. And again, he makes a point of telling her, what you should call him. You're to give him the name Jesus. I've probably said this every Christmas the last dozen years that I've been here and hope we're getting it. Do we know what Jesus means? It's kind of important. Jesus means God saves. Who's bringing the salvation? It's the kid. It's the kid who's coming is going to bring salvation to the world. Luke tells us then who's going to bring salvation. Next he tells us who it's for. And we see that in Mary's song. Mary's song, the point of Mary's song, if I understand it right, is that salvation is for all people. You don't need to be rich or powerful. In fact, being rich or powerful might just hold you back. You don't need to be wealthy or influential. This Savior comes in a bottom-up kind of a way into the world. He comes to anyone who's, who's desperate enough or humble enough to have an appetite for him. They're the ones who will receive salvation. So who's going to bring it? Jesus. Who's it for? For anyone and a last couple of minutes on this question. This salvation, what, what's it like? What form does it take? We'll get our best clues from that in the Zechariah song, which finishes Luke chapter 1. The song's basically a thanksgiving to God. If, you, if you're up to speed with your classic liturgies or your classical music, you've maybe heard of the Benedictus. Well, this is it. Zechariah's song. And he tells us right at the outset why it is that he's so grateful. It's not primarily because God's given him and Liz a kid. No, verse 68. Because he's come and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation or a mighty savior for us. If you read the start of his song, he's talking a lot there about being saved from their enemies. And everybody would have loved that at that circumcision do, hearing him sing about the, the salvation from the enemies, I'm imagining, um, I don't know, a nationalist gathering singing rebel songs. Yeah, we'll throw off the oppressor. That's what's going on here. That's what Israel were hoping for. Who is it's going to come and kick out the latest 
people who have dominated us, who have oppressed us, the, the current occupying Roman forces. Zechariah doesn't shy away from that, but he goes on. As he continues, he makes it clear that Israel's enemies fundamentally aren't the Roman invaders. Look at 76 and 77. He describes there what this son of his is going to do. He says, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you'll go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation. So there it is again. He's talking about salvation. What form is this salvation going to take? Well, stick with Zechariah's prophecy, and we discover that it comes through the forgiveness of their sins. So we're asking a third question about salvation. What form does it take? And we're discovering that it's about the forgiveness of sins. We'll have to work hard here to keep a biblical balance about salvation. You see, I believe that Luke does have a revolution in mind. He does expect to see a world turned upside down. We talked about this three weeks ago in our introduction. He believes that God's kingdom is a place where the humble are lifted high, where the the rulers and the proud are cast down low. He really genuinely believes that, and we'll see that in the ministry of Jesus. But just before we leave it there and imagine that the salvation takes only a social or a political form, he grounds it much, much closer to home. The forgiveness of sins. Before there can be just relationships between man and man, there have to be right and just relationships between man and God. It's the sin that spoils our fundamental relationship with God that spills out into all these other broken relationships. It needs to be repented of. It needs to be forgiven. A couple of weeks ago, uh, when we introduced Luke's gospel, I stole that line from Titanic. That, That phrase, he saved me in all the ways that a person needs to be saved. Bible-believing Christians in every generation have always believed that, that God's salvation is comprehensive. We believe that it's God's will for relationships, political as well as spiritual, eventually to be put right. We believe that God does have a heart for and a plan to deal with global warming and with ISIS and with all the the countless things that we're reading about and hearing about in our news these days. But here's the thing this morning. We believe that the thing that's wrong with the world isn't just out there and wrong with the world. We believe it's in here and wrong with us. It's my sinful heart that needs to be cleansed. It's my broken relationship with my father that needs to be restored. 
it's me who needs to be saved in all the ways that a person can be saved. That is what salvation is really all about. And that's why John the Baptist's coming to prepare the way. And that's why this other kid is coming too. To bring it and to do it. Let's pray. Father God, we have been in your word. Thank you for it. These accounts of things that happened a long time ago can seem very distant to us. And yet when we allow a little bit of time and space, allow your spirit to come and to, to speak to us, we hear your voice as clear as though you spoke these words the first time to us. Lord, we thank you for what you were doing in the lives of these humble people all those years ago, how you broke in, how you said, no, there's a different story going to be told. It's not the story of your culture, not the story of your family's expectations. It's my story of my grace breaking into your lives. Lord, thank you that they entered into that. They allowed themselves to participate with you. Elizabeth and Zechariah, Mary, John, and finally, Jesus, your own lovely son. Lord, we pray that we'd find ourselves in the same cast, that we'd join the plot of this great story. And this Christmas season, help us to relax, to give up, trying to create a perfect Christmas for ourselves and instead to receive the perfect gift, the perfect salvation, the perfect life you came to give us in Jesus. Give us hands and a heart open enough to receive all this. Amen.